Support for Switched On Pop comes from VibeCheck. If you need more of my friend Sam Sanders in your life, then you'll want to check out his new pod called VibeCheck. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture, from foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup. Every Wednesday, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's like your favorite group chat come to life. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, Nate. So I've got a topic for this week that might be a little bit of a minefield. Okay. Uh, you mean metaphorically speaking, I think. Y- yeah, definitely. We're... Uh, in a closet and under a blanket recording. We're, we're definitely not in danger of anything serious. Right. But Okay, so what is what is this metaphorical minefield? Megan Trainer's back on the charts. She's got two new songs on which she re-engages with a pop feminist message, which she's been known for. No, my sign is no, my number is no. Mm. You need to let it go. Mm. You need to let it go. Mm. Need to let it go. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, when we first heard Megan Trainer singing about pop feminism, she was focusing on the specific topic of body empowerment on her song All About That Bass from a few years back. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, 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 bass. But many listeners and critics called it out for being really kind of regressive, not very progressive. So I thought we should do an episode about Megan Trainer's feminist redemption. Ooh, uh, are you sure we should do that? Yeah, no, exactly. Because <laughs> then I realized that there's a lot of problems with this idea. Right. Most obviously, we're a bunch of white guys with microphones potentially mansplaining our ideas about feminism. Not good. Yeah, we could easily slip into this blogosphere trope of, well, actually, style clickbait articles where we're not really informed on an issue and it's not really about, in this case, say, feminism, but mainly just about celebrity and taking them down or building them up. Yeah, and I definitely don't want to fall into that trap. But at the same time, I think it's really important that we listen deeply to pop music and with major artists like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and Beyonce claiming a feminist mantle, it would also feel wrong to avoid the subject altogether. Totally. But maybe we need to be careful here so that this doesn't turn into a conversation about what we think is and isn't feminist. Agreed. And I don't want to do that. No. Yeah. So let's ask a different question. Maybe something like, how could we learn to listen to pop music from a feminist perspective? There we go. Minefield. Potentially averted. Potentially. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. 
And on this episode of Switched on Pop, we have a mission to explore the history of pop music feminism and to see how we can tune our ears to listen to this music from a feminist perspective. Great. So let's get right into it. The very first thing I wanted to know is where is this all coming from? If there's suddenly a trend where it's now popular to claim that you're a feminist, it certainly wasn't earlier. And I want to figure out where this came from. So I thought I'd speak directly with someone who really knows the story of pop feminism. I'm Andy Zeisler. I'm the editorial creative director of Bitch Media and the author of We Were Feminists Once. Andy's book is all about the shift from activist feminism focusing on collective issues of women's rights to what she calls marketplace feminism, which is really more about making commercial choices which are sold as a form of empowering individual expression. Uh. And though this trend has happened over decades in advertising and film and fashion, the story of how pop music contributed to the explosion of marketplace feminism really takes off in the 1990s with the rise of girl power. Girl power was one of the original kind of rallying cries um, in the Riot Girl movement. And the, the very first issue of Riot Girl Zine, which was kind of a manifesto, um, talked about the general lack of girl power in society, by which it meant, you know, girls, teenage girls, preteen girls, tend to be the most sort of sidelined in culture because, you know, we laugh at the music they listen to, we push them aside, they're not taken seriously as a demographic or an audience. And so that became kind of the basis of this movement that was really about standing up, making space, taking space, being heard, and not being afraid to do something before you had perfected it. So that was the that was certainly the ethos of the zines and the music was, you know, sort of do it even though there are going to be people telling you that you can't do it. But as Andy tells it, Riot Girl wouldn't stay DIY for long because savvy Don Draper types on Madison Avenue and music executives saw this trend happening and needed a way to repackage it and make it extremely sellable. It was very easy to sort of co-opt Riot Girl because it, A, it wasn't a particularly organized movement and B, they were very media shy. So the media took the opportunity to just basically make stuff up and run with it. And Riot Girl, you know, found itself in a position where 75% of what was written about the movement was sheer lies or conjecture based on, you know, media assumptions. And that made it easier to sort of harvest this idea of girl power and use it in a much more sort of commercially nefarious way, which happened when the Spice Girls uh, became a thing. Their rallying cry became girl power, but it was completely different. It had nothing to do really with actual power. It had to do with selling things, and it had to do with selling things that were already familiar to young girls, um, you know, nail polish and lipstick and images that were all sort of um, made along the lines of stereotypes, you know, the, the sexy hot girl or the cute sporty girl or the super naive baby type girl. So there were all these personas and all of them were supposed to be about girl power, but what they really were was about getting young girls as early as possible to be 
consumers in the name of girl power. Okay, so this was a major pivot point in shifting the public's perception of feminism, making it more digestible and upbeat and available to a pop mainstream. Right. But that's not to invalidate the Spice Girls to say that they weren't hugely important for a lot of young listeners and maybe remain so today, providing a bridge into deeper issues. No, definitely not. We don't want to invalidate anyone's feelings about the Spice Girls. But rather, it raises this question for me about what does feminist music sound like? Or, Charlie, maybe the question is, can music sound feminist? That is the question. Let's go there. Let's do it. Okay. So this whole question sparked in my mind when I read a blog post called Why Is There No Music Analysis in Feminist Theory by Dr. Robin James, Associate Professor of Philosophy at UNC Charlotte. It made me think about how my initial reaction to All About That Bass was all about the lyrics, Ah. but maybe I was missing something in the music. How could we interpret the song if we were just listening to the music? You're saying you were... All about those lyrics, about those lyrics, no music. Uh, All about those lyrics, (laughs) about those lyrics, no music. For deeper, more insightful analysis, let's go to the source. We spoke directly with Professor James. When we listen for feminism in music, you have to sort of really deeply listen, I think, and be uh, familiar with how certain sounds become gendered, for example. A famous example of this would be something like the, the booty clap sounds. Uh, that you hear in a lot of trap music, right? Like the the 4-4 hand clap. It's in a lot of sort of trappy strip club music. It's like in Big Sean's ass is like the, the classic example. That becomes gendered in a certain way because it's associated with women's bodies, right? Now make that mother mother hammer sound like... Okay, this is definitely making sense to me, because if we're listening to a song, we're automatically making associations with other songs. Like one bass line sounds like another bass line, one melody sounds like another melody. And if you're drawing from something else, you have to be careful about that source material, especially if it's doing something which may be misogynist or in any way just has a bad negative association. Yeah, this is such an interesting idea from Robin James, right, that sounds themselves aren't necessarily just neutral, as we might think of them, but can be loaded with associations and especially gendered connotations. Go on. Well, I think it's it's probably hard to argue that any sound is inherently gendered, right? Yeah. That, say, uh, a C major chord is more feminine than uh, an F minor chord. That seems kind of absurd. Absolutely. Ditto, probably. That to say that a bass is no more feminine or masculine than a piano. Yeah, of course not. I mean, I guess you could say that a bass is lower and that men have lower voices, but... Well, does a bass actually go lower than a piano? No, a piano goes lower. Ooh, good point. Good point, Charles. Still, we have associations that may be do more to accidents of history, like the fact that women in Victorian high society were relegated to only playing certain instruments that were deemed appropriate, such as the piano, the violin, and the flute. Can you imagine an instrument that would not have been appropriate for a Victorian high society lady to play, Charlie? Uh, the timpani. <laughs> That's a good... Yes, that would have definitely been way too aggressive. 
And there was one that was surrounded with a, a lot of controversy, which was the cello. Oh, okay. Because you have to wrap your legs around it. Ooh. And that was seen as very unladylike. And one uh, British cello instructional guide from the late 19th century actually says the way that women should play the cello is not the normal way, but by moving their legs to the side of the cello. Which will not let you play the cello very well. No, which makes it sound terrible. Totally absurd. Whether we know it or not, there are these very gendered connotations attached to different sounds. Right, and it might not just be the instruments themselves, but it can also be the way that we play it, which sets up expectations of style and genre. For instance, Professor James is really interested in how we interpret vocal performances from a gendered perspective. Some people call this feminist. I don't necessarily call this feminist. I would call it kind of lean-in style corporate post-feminism, but you hear women using strong voices, right? So like the the vocal melisma, the, the drop in Taylor Swift's Break It Off, right? Is her sort of letting go of all constraints and just being herself, right? Or um, Demi Lovato sort of taking on this Gary Glitter style beat, right? Being confident. Right, that sort of use of the forceful, aggressive voice. Some people call it feminist sonic aesthetic that, that you hear in pop today. A couple of components of a feminist aesthetic might include things like refuting patriarchy, right? Or doing something other than the sort of uh, common or expected thing, right? Because the normal thing in a patriarchy, the normal thing is patriarchal. So if you do something other than the normal thing, right, that might be one way of, of sort of intervening in the, the gendered sonic landscape. I just saw Grimes play at Moogfest last weekend. Part of what she does is she has this really high-pitched feminine voice, which you don't hear a lot of in electronic music. That really stood out to me, right? Like her vocal timbre and her pitch and the sort of girlishness of her voice and the, the sort of way that intervened in a gendered way. Yeah, I love what Professor James is saying here. And I actually asked Andy about the exact same thing. And I like how she expands on the idea of how refuting the norm can be a form of feminist expression. Whenever you're hearing something that kind of refuses to conform and is then paired with with lyrics where the music is not necessarily pleasing to the ear. I feel like the slits and the raincoats are really obvious examples of this. There's definitely this sense of like, this is music that is going to put off some people. And it's also going to probably anger some people who are very concerned with, you know, formalism in music. Sleater Kinney is also a really good example of this. 
especially with the, the vocals, which are what a lot of people would term, you know, shrill. There's this sense of not needing permission, not needing um, the sort of stamp of approval from what is a largely male rock community and, you know, not conforming to the codes of, you know, classic, formal, recognized rock and roll. And there's a defiance to it, too, even if that doesn't always come through, again, in the vocals or the lyrics. There's a sense of, I'm, I'm doing this without your permission, and I honestly don't care if you like it. Wow. I can see how this is a really powerful idea of, of not needing permission to sound however you want to sound. Yeah, and I like that Andy actually extends this idea of who has permission to play music. Actually, back to the listener and who has permission to listen. We certainly have a long history of musicians actively distancing themselves from feminist movements, but still having their work sort of held up as emblematic of feminist principles or feminist feelings or feminist um, theory even. That split is part of what makes the experience of the audience very rich because you don't necessarily need the permission of the creator um, to understand it through a feminist lens or a socially conscious lens. It's there and it's open to interpretation. It's sort of a gift in that way. Oh, so in a way, there's this ongoing conversation between artists and listener, between the intent and the interpretation, in which the so-called true message of the music actually lies not in the song, but in the ether of our collective listening. That's right. It's not just our listening, as in like you and me, Nate, listening to music, but it's all of our listening. And that kind of makes it complicated. It's challenging to say, what is a song about? What was its intent? When we are considering this larger collective interpretation, it makes me wonder, how can we listen from this wider perspective? That is a great question that I am totally ill-equipped to answer. So can we go back to Professor James for a sec? Absolutely. Your background certainly gives you access to a range of things, but it's limited and you have to look to others to see what they can contribute to talk about um, things that are inconsistent with your background. So for example, things that might seem neutral to you might not seem neutral to someone else, right? Like part of it just involves talking to people reading outside of your own uh, subject position or area of expertise and just recognizing that you really have to sort of listen to, to other people and take them seriously and their experiences of music seriously. I think this is exactly why I was feeling uncomfortable at the beginning of the episode and starting to realize that perhaps our backgrounds give us only a limited perspective on what we're hearing in a song. We're not hearing it from the perspective of millions of other people. We're hearing it as Nate and Charlie. So when we come back, 
let's learn to listen to all about that bass through the ears of other people. Yeah. This is exciting. Support for Switched on Pop comes from Vibe Check. If you were an Intuit fan and you are missing Sam Sanders, then have no fear. He's back with another great pod called Vibe Check. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture. From Elon Musk and foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup to Usher's Super Bowl halftime show, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. They're currently doing a series called Hey Sis, where they're highlighting the compelling stories of black women and their achievements. They're being joined by special guests Regina King, Audie Cornish, Raquel Willis, and more. Vibe Check is your favorite group chat come to life. You can join the Weekly Kiki every Wednesday. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Can't believe Sam made me say Kiki. Back that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Okay, Charlie, back to our central question. Yeah. Which is... I might remind you, how can we listen more deeply and tune our ears to a feminist perspective in pop music? Great, let's do it. And what I want to do is let's look at this case study of all about that bass and figure out why am I hearing such conflicting messages? I mean, in light of what Andy Zeisler and Robin James are saying, I, I wonder if part of what's bugging you about this tune, all about that bass is its strong sense of musical formalism. Right. For Andy Zeisler, musical formalism might be anything which sounds immediately pleasing or familiar. And I don't think we're getting anything particularly jarring with Megan Trainer. All of her songs are pretty catchy, they're upbeat, and they're full of musical retro throwbacks. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass. Yeah, I mean, when we listen to all about that bass, I'm hearing, what, a complete throwback to 1960s pop, doo-wop, girls group, a familiar blues bass line. Uh, this pleasing retro vocal style and a highly repetitive chorus. It starts highly with the chorus. Repetitive. The chorus goes chorus. on again. Highly repetitive. It goes on again. Chorus. It goes on again. Highly it goes on again. repetitive. Make it stop! Chorus. Sorry, where am I? What's happening? Thank God. Or actually, I should say that's what I'm hearing. And just because I hear it a certain way doesn't mean that others aren't hearing it differently. Yes, very wise. I think that we should definitely take Professor James' advice and learn to listen through other people's ears. So what I did is I reached out to someone who really helped me wake up to what's actually going on in All About That Base. I'm Jenny Trout, and I'm an author and a blogger. And I blog about pop culture things in sometimes funny ways and in other times just kind of ranty ways. You wrote an excellent article on Megan Trainer taking a really critical eye at her body empowerment song all about that bass. In your piece, you pull out some really meaningful contradictions, problems, and stereotypes in her song. And I want to get into that, but I wanted to just first ask... Do you remember perhaps your very first non-deep listening initial reaction to her song? Yes, I do, actually. Uh, my husband came home from work and he said, I just heard a song 
and you're going to hate it. <laughs> and I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, he's like, it's called All About That Bass. He's like, you're going to you're gonna love the song, but you're going to hate that you like it. <laughs> so I listened to it, and I was like, the first time I listened to it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, like, you know, really cute, and this is blah, blah, blah. And then, then like, the second time I listened to it, I was like, oh, man, he's right. I, I really like this song, but I really hate the lyrics and everything around it. So, What do you think the message of the song is trying to portray? I think it's definitely trying to um, tell women and probably specifically young girls that it doesn't matter what you look like. It's not, you know, that you should love yourself and all that. You know? But it's a, it's a very shallow message sort of at that level. And uh, so I think, you know, it had good intentions. She had good intentions. Right. But, but what message are you hearing? Very much that there's only one right way to be a woman, there's only one, you have to look a certain way, that that what your attractiveness is based on is, is what a man values in a woman's appearance. There's so many different... Um, layers to this where you go okay I can see where all of this stuff is coming from I can see that you know we're saying that these male standards of beauty and basing ourselves on uh, our self-worth on what a man likes about us and then the whole you know oh I'm better because of that and there's only one good way to look it's this whole like it's like a stew of misogyny of internalized misogyny that women direct at themselves and that's unfortunately what's getting across she totally inverts her message here yeah exactly it goes from we shouldn't be judging ourselves and that's really the whole thing actually is that she's she's saying you know we can't judge ourselves um because you know we're beautiful we're all beautiful and wonderful but you know the guys judging us is what gives us value so in jenny's piece i am not all about that bass she also goes on to point out that in the song's music video there are actually very few plus-sized people right and despite this really tough deserved critique Jenny's also careful not to fall into the trap of shaming Trainer for her less than feminist body anthem. Sometimes when you critique uh, a work or something like that, it's taken as a critique of the artist performing it or the, the person who wrote it. But unless you are calling this person out by name and saying this is because you're a bad person, what you're saying is your work is falling short. <laughs> and that was something that I think... I want well, something I know people forget all the time because I still hear people say to me, they'll go, oh, well, you just hate Megan Trader. And it's like, no, actually, I like a lot of her songs because they're catchy as hell. Like, <laughs> I just don't like this song. And I think it was a bad choice. And I think that we're talking about someone who's very young, who probably can't, you know, call the shots and go, hey, maybe I'm going to change this or I'm going to mix this up. I, there would have been some lyric changes and some things would have been a lot different. I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Hey, thanks a bunch. So if we're feeling a little jaded on this supposedly body positive anthem, I thought it could be good for us to find perhaps a more exemplary song in this vein. Oh, yeah, I think that would be fun. Maybe once again, I'm probably not the best person to make that choice. So why don't we uh, find someone else to help us out here? Totally. So I reached out to my friend Andrea Warner. She's a writer, critic, and host of the excellent podcast Pop This. 
for her thoughts on the matter. I, I look at someone like Lizzo, uh, good as hell. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Good as Good as Hell is one, an amazing song. Lizzo is a woman who who actually is plus size. And she has a you know, her video shows women of all sizes, all shapes. I feel like she talks really sort of eloquently and interestingly and with a lot of authority and thoughtfulness about what it is to have a body that's not quite like you know, sort of the normal average size and represent that space and be proud of that body, be proud of the space that she takes up. And her songs, therefore, have it just feels more resonant. It feels like it hits home and it's a hell of a good song. Oh, this is a really fun track. I love it. Right. But I, I do want to say, like, whether we're listening to Megan Trainer or this Lizzo jam, courtesy of Andrea, we can see that both of these songs are part of a larger trend of pop music feminism at the moment that's garnering both criticism and adulation. Which makes me wonder, what should we make of this trend? I mean, there's no doubt that when Beyonce steps on stage and the words feminist are behind her in a 30-foot giant sign... She's definitely opening the eyes and ears of young people to a movement with real power, right? Yeah, and to answer that question, I think we need to go back to where we started with Andy Zeisler, who's the real expert on how we might bridge pop culture and feminism. You know, the thing is, I don't necessarily see marketplace feminism and activist feminism having nothing in common. I think there's a, a place where they overlap that has the potential to be really rich. You know, I think where we need to be careful and maybe where we need to be watchful is um, when it does start becoming about selling a product. But Andy does see a place for celebrities and pop stars in raising awareness for social issues. They have the sort of PR ambassadorship. You know, someone like Harry Belafonte, for instance, his role in the civil rights movement was in many ways one of ambassadorship in the sense that people were familiar with his music. They were familiar with his background. He had a kind of way to straddle both the civil rights movement as kind of a, you know, subversive movement and mass culture as a very, very popular entertainer. We've always seen that bit be a, a pretty crucial way to bring awareness to, to issues that other people might not know anything about. So I think there's a way in which they have a crucial role to play and they also have a crucial moment to sort of step back and make it not about them and make it in fact about the, the actual issue. All right, Nate. So what have you learned through today's investigation? Oh man, Charlie, so much. But I think above all, we've seen that we need to be careful about getting caught up in what might seem like internet debates, but are actually just clickbait. Yeah. 
uh, because the focus on one celebrity's feminism or not can actually be a distraction from real actions on feminist issues. Which kind of makes me think that this whole podcast might be complicit in our own criticism. That's it's, it's, like in some recursive loop. Yes, that's entirely possible. But I also think that we are coming away more equipped to listen from a feminist perspective, right? To question musical formalism as political agency. Yeah, and I think we also learned that musical sounds can have gendered associations that we have to pay attention to. Right. And maybe that musical meaning doesn't just exist in the ear of the beholder, but rather in some collective interpretation of a song that, you know, can change over time. For now, I think we should close this investigation because it's about time to end the episode. But I think that we need to make sure that we're using these tools as we look at music on Switch on Pop in the future. Ditto, man. I totally agree. This episode of Switched on Pop was produced and edited by me, Charlie Harding, and my pal, Nate Sloan. I especially want to thank Andy Zeisler for joining us. You should definitely go pick up her book, We Were Feminists Once, out now. I could not put this book down. There were moments where I was screaming that I couldn't believe the history of pop feminism and other times that I was laughing out loud because it's just such great writing. Yeah. You can also catch her at the Printer's Row Lit Fest in Chicago the weekend of June 11th. Also, huge thanks to Professor Robin James, Jenny Trout, and Andrea Warner for contributing their voices to this episode. Thank you also for production assistance from Alex Kappelman from the podcast Pitch, as well as Susan Kaminar and Pergo Pergolizzi. Luke Harris designed our logo. You can find his work at LukeHarris.com. And you can listen to more episodes on www.switchedonpop.com, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes, where we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review. Or you can reach out on Twitter with show suggestions at Switched On Pop. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. And until then, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. Whoa. Support for Switched On Pop comes from VibeCheck. If you need more of my friend Sam Sanders in your life, then you'll want to check out his new pod called Vibe Check. Each week, Sam and his two best friends, writer Saeed Jones and journalist and producer Zach Stafford, make sense of what's going on in the news and culture, from foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup. Every Wednesday, they check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's like your favorite group chat come to life. Listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.